Hey, good morning. We're so glad you're here this morning, and um, it's been such a good day. Going to continue to be that. Um, when I was in Cleveland, Texas, um, we always tried to do a youth ministry, um, a mission trip at the end of every summer or at some point during the summer. And so we, we got to do really cool things. Um, we went to um, Katrina um, and, and did a lot of work demucking houses after the hurricane hit and um, working several inner city um, groups. But my last summer there, um, I decided we're going to try to do something a little bit different because it seemed like every um, summer people would have these major, major needs and we would already have everything planned out and we couldn't really stop what we were doing or change our plans and, and go help where help was needed. And so I came up with this idea. This summer, we're just going to trust that God is going to provide an opportunity for us as a group to go and serve. And so I said, we're not going to plan anything. We're going to leave two or three weeks um, in a row wide open, and we're going to just kind of try to listen as a, a group to the voice of God, which sounds like a, a really good idea in my mind. The problem is I have some friends who had kids in the youth group, and we had breakfast the following Tuesday. And they ask, well, well, Gary, do you want us to be praying for a tornado or a hurricane? <laughs> and in my mind, right, it was, we're going to be able to, to go where God needs us because we trust him. And now, it, it didn't really come out that way, or it did, just my friends have to give us a hard time about it. But it provided an opportunity for us as a group to say, God, we're, we're asking, where do you need us? How can we serve you? How can we be a blessing? And that was the summer or the, the school year, the spring, that the tornado hit more Oklahoma. And so as a, a youth group, we were able to say, hey, we're going to put all the resources that we had saved up for this. We're going to put all of our, our kids, and we're going to go and serve in more Oklahoma. And it was a really, really powerful trip. Because for us, it was one of those moments where we were saying, God, we're, we're not going to plan everything out for you. We're going to allow you to work. And we're going to just simply show up and be your hands and feet. And it's one of those, for me, it was one of the more powerful trips we ever took. Um, not, not just simply seeing the devastation in the people's lives that were hurting, but seeing our kids trust that God was going to provide an opportunity for us to serve. Right? Not that God was going to provide a storm, but that he was going to provide an opportunity for us to serve. And, and this whole thing goes back to this really, really important question. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God is at work in your life? That he is working things for good, that he is moving, and that he is present. And that's a really, really important question for us. And we're in the book of Ruth right now as we go through this really short four-chapter book, because the book has a couple of goals. One, we said last week, was just to kind of show the genealogy of David and how he becomes king. But the second is really dealing with this 
question, this really important question, how is God involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of life? How does God show up in our life on a day-to-day basis? And maybe even the question for some of you, does God even show up in our life on a day-to-day basis? Because my guess is there are people in here who are in a, a lot of different places. People who could say, right now, I've seen God at work in my life recently. And people at the same time who could say, you know, right now I'm really struggling and I'm really wondering where God is because I'm going through some really, really difficult times. And I'm questioning, God, how are you involved? And the whole story centers around a lady named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi is married to a guy named Elimelech. They have two children, Malon and Kilion. And there is a severe famine in Bethlehem where they live. And so they move to Moab, one of Israel's ancient enemies. And once they get to Moab, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with her two sons who go and marry um, Moabite women, one named Ruth, the other named Orpah. And after they're married and they live for a while in Moab, her two sons died, and now she is left with just her daughter-in-laws. And she makes the decision, because she's lost so much, that she's going to move back to Bethlehem. And as she gets ready, she tells her daughter-in-laws, I want you to go ahead and stay here. Be with your people. I'm going to go back to my people. And they insist they're going to go with her. But she urges them, no, I want you to stay. And so Orpah makes the decision, I'm going to stay here in Moab. But Ruth refuses to leave Naomi and decides that she's going to make this journey away from her people back to Bethlehem to live with Naomi. And that's kind of where chapter 1 ends, and it ends with this verse in, in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. And it keeps saying over and over, I think seven times in these four, short four chapters, that Ruth is a Moabite. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And so that kind of sets the scene for chapter 2 and what's going to, to follow. Right? So in chapter 2, verse 2, And Ruth, the Moabite, again, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. And so she she has this in her mind that she's going to go into the fields, that she's going to pick grain in someone's field that her family doesn't own, that she doesn't know who, because there is a law in Israel which God has used to provide for people. One of the places it talks about this is Leviticus 19. And it says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Verse 10, Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Again, it talks about this in Deuteronomy 24. 
When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so there is this law in Israel. If you own land, if you have a field, if you have a vineyard, then you're going to leave what's on the edges. You're going to leave. You're not going to pick everything. You're going to leave some. For who? For the poor, for the foreigner, for the widow, for the fatherless. That God is going to use the abundance of what you have to provide for someone else. Now, understand this. God gives in the Old Testament, in the Torah, 613 commands. And if you were just to read through this, my guess is you would think, well, those are kind of obscure commands. They're probably not as important as don't kill someone. Right? Don't steal or, or don't covet. The, those, those two commands, they're not quite as important or significant. They don't really matter as much or carry as much weight. But yet, out of 613 commands... There are these two commands that talk about leaving extra grapes in your vineyard and not gleaning all of the harvest in your fields. And I started thinking, I wonder when Naomi and Elimelech, when they lived in Bethlehem and they had a field, I wonder if they obeyed this command. I wonder if they followed this command. See, these commands were given about 300 years before Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem. 300 years earlier, God gives these commands, and yet now we have a widow and a widow who is a foreigner coming back from Moab to Bethlehem, and it is providing food for them. It's, it's pretty crazy to think that those two obscure laws could make that big of a difference in someone's life. Laws that I'm sure that you would have looked at as a, a person of as an Israelite and say, well, I mean, it's not that important for me because I have the field and everything is okay. But what was the purpose of the law in the first place? The, the purpose of the law was never for God to say, this is how you're going to behave so that we're right together. Right? The purpose of the law wasn't just that you would be right with God. It was also so that you could live in harmony with other people. Not just the other people who were like you, but the other people who lived around you as well. That you could have, you, you could live in relationship with them, and there could be a healthy relationship. So you have this widow and this foreigner who come back to Bethlehem. And, and it's interesting if you look at this story, if you look at this story, you see that God provides a law that ends up being a blessing for his people. 
He provides a law that ends up being a blessing. But not just a law. He also provides a person. So, when she goes out into the fields, she picks a field, and she begins to go behind the harvesters. And this field just so happens to belong to a man named Boaz. And Boaz notices Ruth in the field gleaning. And he asks about her. He asked his workers, who is this lady out in my field? And they say, well, this is Ruth, the Moabite. And he says, I've heard of her. She is the one that has been so good and so faithful to Naomi. To stay with her, to live with her, to walk with her. And so he goes to Ruth and says, I want you to stay in my field. And I want you to go behind my harvesters. And I'm going to take care of you. And if you need a break, you can go and take rest. If you need some food or water, it will be there. And then, as she picks the grain and harvests it, she leaves with about 30 pounds of grain that she's going to be able to take home to take care of Naomi and Ruth. And so she does. She goes back home to Naomi with this grain. And in verse 19, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her, said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She added that this man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. So, so God has provided a law, and now He has provided a person named Boaz. And this phrase, this term, guardian redeemer, is actually a part of another law that God had given long ago. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry um, carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, If a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at that town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, 
His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, does this sound sound like a little like um, Jerry Springer? (laughs) Spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, now in our society, if your husband were to die and you were to go marry his wife, my guess is there would probably be a police investigation (laughs) to see if you were the one that killed him. But, but think about it a little bit different, not in the context of our, our culture as far as the marriage goes, but think of it in terms of airship. If someone dies, who is it that gets their inheritance? Who is it that gets their debts? Who is it who is responsible for their children? Right? Who, who is the closest living heir that is now responsible. Because in the grand scheme of things, that's what this law in Deuteronomy was actually about. It was about preserving their name, predominantly through land acquisition, being able to acquire land or buy back land, or two, through their children, and being being able to carry on their family name. Right? This was the importance of this law. It was so that their name wasn't blotted out from Israel. And, and as we say, this, this kind of seems absurd to us. But for Naomi and Ruth, it's another law out of 613 that we would probably look at and say, well, that one's probably not that important, that God somehow uses to provide for Ruth. And Naomi. Right? And, and you think, well, is that, that law that important? You remember in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is asked this question about marriage and the resurrection. Let's say someone's husband dies, and they marry their brother, and he dies, and marry another brother. Do you remember this story? Right? That story was about that law in Deuteronomy. This was a part of their life. And God has used two laws that, that, again, we would say, well, that's probably, it's kind of obscure, it's not super important. He's used two laws, and one of those laws leads to a person. And that person becomes the one who is going to step in to provide for Ruth and Naomi going to provide for this widow and for this foreigner. And there's a problem in stories like this as you read along. You get so sucked into what's happening right here that sometimes you miss the bigger picture. See, we're we're asking this question, how is God involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of life? And we can get so sucked into the story that we miss the bigger picture. 
This last summer, we took a trip as a family to Colorado. And one of our, our days there, we decided we were going to go on this um, hike. And looking back, it was probably a little ambitious for Caleb and Kaylee. Um, I think on the day, we did eight total miles and about 2,000 vertical feet with a, at the time, six-year-old and eight-year-old. And they were, they were troopers. They did fantastic. They made it. But, but one of the things we kept having to do was stop along the way and let them have some rest and let them turn around and see behind them. Because when you're going up a mountain, like all you're doing is really working on the steps right in front of you, the next step that you take. And you might see some things around you because you're surrounded by this huge forest and these trees, and it limits your vision. But every once in a while, we would come to these little clearings. And then we got to the point where we were at the tree line. And we could say to Caleb and Kaylee, hey, 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 look back and look at how far we've come. Look at all the things that we've been through. We, we began. You can't even see the place now that we began. But you've been able to make it. And I think this is one of those points in this story where it's like, okay, let, let's step outside of the page of this story and what's happening right now in the text. And let's, let's take a big look at what's happening in the grand scheme of this story. Naomi and her family are experiencing a famine. And they move to Moab. And it seems like God is providing for them. And then Elimelech, her husband, dies. And her sons marry Moabite women. And then her sons die. And it seems like she is losing everything. And, and through chapter 1, she keeps blaming God. God has done this. God has taken away. She says, I left and went to Moab full, but God has brought me back empty. In fact, I should just change my name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter. Because God has made my life bitter. She's on this journey where it seems like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Where she is losing her family. And she's losing her connections. And it doesn't seem like God has provided for her in her home. And so she moves away. And then she gets word that God is at work. And He is providing for His people in Bethlehem. And so she moves back home. And it seems like everything in her life has gone the complete opposite direction of what it should do if God was really involved and God was at work. I mean, if God was involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of life, it, it would be so evident. I would know that God was there and God was working. And then she finds herself working in Boaz's field. See, and there's, there's two ways that you can really look at this. One, it's by chance that Ruth ends up gleaning in Boaz's field. That she's walking through this open country and just says, you know what? 
I'm going to pick that field. And so we can say, well, it's by chance that it happens. Or two, God is orchestrating everything in beautiful and mysterious ways. Now, what I don't mean is that God is this cosmic chess player who's saying, you're going to be here, 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 here. But think about this. 300 years before, Naomi and Ruth were even thought of. God gives these laws. And to us, as we look at them, we would say, that's kind of, that's not super important. It's kind of obscure. But yet, somehow, those laws end up being a blessing to Ruth and Naomi. And those laws also provide a guardian redeemer. Someone who will step into the story and say, I know things have not gone the way that you think they should. I know you're not in a really good, I know you're hurting, I know you're lonely, I know you're scared, I know you don't have anything to provide for yourself, but I am here and I will take care of you. It's almost like in Romans, when Paul tells us that we know in all things God works for the good for those who love him and have been called according to his promise. And that question that we began with, do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God has your best interest in mind? Do you believe that He has given you this word of His, not to be a burden, but to be a blessing? I mean, do you believe the world would be a better... If people just... If we just took the Ten Commandments alone by itself and just said, we're going to obey as a society, we're going to follow this, we're going to obey, do you believe the world would be a better place? And he gives this law. And this law becomes a blessing. So so what is it that we learn from this story of Ruth about God's providence and how he's at work in our world and what he's doing for us? I, I would say first that God hears the prayers of his people and he answers. Although we might not always recognize it. What that does not mean is, well, one day you're just going to look back and think that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Losing a child. Losing a spouse. Losing a job. Going without. Being evicted. Getting a divorce. It does not mean you're going to look back and say, well, I'm so glad that happened. And I don't think Naomi ever gets to a point and says, I'm so glad my husband died and my sons died. But what it does mean is years down the road, 
Maybe not even in the moment. It might be years. That you will look back and say, God, I can see how you were faithfully walking with me and mysteriously orchestrating things in my life. Because I was going through a really difficult time and someone showed up and that person became a mentor to me. And that person taught me. And that person loved me. And that person was a friend. Or I didn't think I could hit any lower. And then this person came into my life. Or God blessed me with a new opportunity or a new job. It does not mean you will always look back and say, well, I know exactly what you're doing. I'm so glad I went through it. But what you will do. And this is me Speaking from the limited experience I have, you will look back on those events and say, God, I do not understand why I went through those. It was painful. It was hurtful. I would never want to do it again. But what I have learned is that through everything you have been faithful and you have been good and you have walked with me through the darkest nights, And I know and trust that you will continue to do the same. And the second thing I think we learn is that it's possible you just might be the answer to someone else's prayer. Because I guess my my assumption would be that Naomi and Ruth, as they move back to Bethlehem, are crying out to God for help. God, I need someone. I need something. And she ends up in the field of Boaz. And Boaz, without ever knowing it, becomes the answer to Ruth and Naomi's pleas for help. And I believe the same could be true for you and I. That it's possible that you walk out these doors today and you are the very prayer that someone has been praying that God would answer. And in that moment, you have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to show God's faithfulness and goodness through your life today. Because you've seen God be faithful in your life. Even when we question, even when we're uncertain. But just maybe, just maybe you could be the prayer. As someone's praying, God save us. That could be God's plan for you. Because that was Israel's prayer for centuries. Lord, save us. And He does. Because the answer to Israel's prayer 
becomes God in the flesh. As they're praying, God save us, Lord save us. God puts on flesh and blood and steps into our world and becomes the answer to the prayer that they were praying. What a beautiful story of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our life. Father, today, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here, to grow, to learn, and to see you at work. And Father, we pray that your presence would continue to guide. Father, that you would continue to lead as you bless us as your people. Father, we're so thankful for all of the things that you do and continue to do in our life. Father, most of all, for Jesus, who ultimately answers that prayer, Lord, save us. As your son becomes one of us and lays down his life to do just that. We thank you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name.